Welcome to The Bookshelf. I'm Doug Nadvornik. We are deep into The Sun Also Rises, Ernest Hemingway's novel from 1926 that put him on the world literature scene. The book is about a group of American and British expatriates who are living in post-World War I Europe. While they live in Paris, the book also follows them into Spain as they head to Pamplona for the famous Running of the Bulls. In this episode, the protagonist, American writer Jake Barnes, and his fellow American writer Bill Gorton are heading deep into Spain, first on a fishing trip. We join them as they're riding on the top deck of a bus that's taking them there. Given that The Sun Also Rises is nearly a hundred years old, some of the words used are no longer socially acceptable, so we've scrubbed a few that listeners may find offensive. Let's resume our reading on the bookshelf from Spokane Public Radio. The bus climbed steadily up the road. The country was barren and rocks stuck up through the clay. There was no grass beside the road. Looking back, we could see the country spread out below. Far back, the fields were squares of green and brown on the hillsides. Making the horizon were the brown mountains. They were strangely shaped. As we climbed higher, the horizon kept changing. As the bus ground slowly up the road, we could see other mountains coming up in the south. And then the road came over the crest, flattened out, and we went into a forest. It was a forest of cork oaks, and the sun came through the trees in patches, and there were cattle grazing back in the trees. We went through the forest, and the road came out and turned along a rise of land, and out ahead of us was a rolling green plain with dark mountains beyond it. These were not like the brown, heat-baked mountains we'd left behind. These were wooded, and there were clouds coming down from them. The green plain stretched off. It was cut by fences, and the white of the road showed through the trunks of a double line of trees that crossed the plain toward the north. As we came to the edge of the rise, we saw the red roofs and white houses of Brigetta ahead, strung out on the plain, and away off on the shoulder of the first dark mountain was the gray metal-sheathed roof of the monastery of Roncevay. "'There's Roncevaux,' I said. "'Where?' he asked. "'Way off there where the mountain starts.' "'It's cold up here,' Bill said. "'It's high,' I said. "'It must be twelve hundred meters. "'It's awful cold,' he said. "'The bus leveled down onto the straight line of road "'that ran into Brigetta. "'We passed a crossroads and crossed a bridge over a stream. "'The houses were along both sides of the road. "'There were no side streets. "'We passed the church and the schoolyard, and the bus stopped. "'We got down, and the driver handed down our bags and the rod case.' A guard in his cocked hat and yellow leather cross straps came up. What's in there? He pointed to the rod case. I opened it and showed him. He asked to see our fishing permits, and I got him out. He looked at the date and then waved us on. Is that all right? I asked. Yes, of course. We went up the street, past the whitewashed stone houses, families sitting in their doorways watching us, and we went to the inn. The fat woman who ran the inn came out from the kitchen and shook hands with us. She took off her spectacles, wiped them, and put them on again. It was cold in the inn, and the wind was starting to blow outside. The woman sent a girl upstairs with us to show us the room. There were two beds, and a washstand, and a clothes chest, and a big framed steel engraving of Nuestra Señora de Roncevallas. The wind was blowing against the shutters. The room was on the north side of the inn. 
We washed, we put on our sweaters, and came downstairs into the dining room. It had a stone floor, a low ceiling, and was oak-paneled. The shutters were all up, and it was so cold you could see your breath. My God, said Bill, it can't be this cold tomorrow. I'm not going to wade a stream in this weather. There was an upright piano in the far corner of the room beyond the wooden tables, and Bill went over and started to play. I gotta keep warm, he said. I went out to find the woman and ask her how much the room and board was. She put her hands under her apron and looked away from me. Twelve pesetas, she said. Why, we only paid that in Pamplona, I said. She didn't say anything. She just took off her glasses and wiped them on her apron. That's too much, I said. We didn't pay more than half of that at a big hotel. We've put in a bathroom, she said. Haven't you got anything cheaper? Not in the summer. Now is the big season. We were the only people in the inn. Well, I thought it's only a few days. Is the wine included? Oh, yes. Well, I said then, that's all right. I went back to Bill, and he blew his breath at me to show how cold it was, and he went on playing. I sat at one of the tables and looked at the pictures on the wall. There was one panel of rabbits, dead, one of pheasants, also dead, one panel of dead ducks. The panels were all dark and smoky-looking. There was a cupboard full of liqueur bottles. I looked at all of them. Bill was still playing. How about a hot rum punch, he said. This isn't going to keep me warm permanently. I went out and told the woman what a rum punch was and how to make it. In a few minutes, a girl brought a stone pitcher. It was steaming. She brought it into the room. Bill came over from the piano, and we drank the hot punch and listened to the wind. There isn't too much rum in that. I went over to the cupboard and brought the rum bottle and poured a half tumblerful into the pitcher. Direct action, said Bill. Beats legislation. The girl came in and laid the table for supper. It blows like hell up here, said Bill. The girl brought in a big bowl of hot vegetable soup and the wine. We had fried trout afterward and some sort of a stew and a big bowl full of wild strawberries. We didn't lose money on the wine, and the girl was shy but nice about bringing it. The old woman looked in once and counted the empty bottles. After supper, we went upstairs and smoked and read in bed to keep warm. Once in the night, I woke and heard the wind blowing. It felt good to be warm and in bed. If you're just joining us, we're reading Ernest Hemingway's first major novel, The Sun Also Rises, here on The Bookshelf from Spokane Public Radio. Chapter 12. When I woke in the morning, I went to the window and looked out. It had cleared, and there were no clouds in the mountains. Outside, under the window, were some carts and an old diligence. The wood of the roof was cracked and split by the weather. It must have been left from the days before the motor buses. A goat hopped up on one of the carts and then to the roof of the diligence. He jerked his head at the other goats below, and when I waved at him, he bounded down. Bill was still sleeping, so I got dressed and put on my shoes outside in the hall and went downstairs. No one was stirring down there, so I unbolted the door and went out. It was cool outside in the early morning, and the sun had not yet dried the dew that had come when the wind died down. I hunted around in the shed behind the inn and found a sort of mattock and went down toward the stream to try to dig some worms for bait. The stream was clear and shallow, but it didn't look trouty. 
On the grassy bank where it was damp, I drove the mattock into the earth, and I loosened a chunk of sod. There were worms underneath. They were out of sight as I lifted the sod, and I dug carefully and got a good many. Digging at the edge of the damp ground, I filled two empty tobacco tins with worms, and I sifted dirt under them. The goats watched me dig. When I went back into the inn, the woman was down in the kitchen, and I asked her to get coffee for us and that we wanted lunch. Bill was awake and sitting on the edge of the bed. I saw you out the window, he said. Didn't want to interrupt you. What were you doing, burying your money? You lazy bum, I said. I went on looking for the tackle and putting it all together in the tackle bag. I'm going down to eat. Eat? Why didn't you say eat? I thought you just wanted me to get up for fun. Eat? Fine. Now you're reasonable. You go out and dig up some more worms and I'll be right down. I started out of the room with the tackle bag, the nets, and the rod case. Hey, come back. I put my head in the door. Aren't you going to show a little irony and pity? I thumbed my nose. That's not irony. As I went downstairs, I heard Bill singing, Irony and pity, when you're feeling, Oh, give them irony and give them pity. Oh, give them irony, when they're feeling, Just a little irony, just a little pity. He kept on singing until he came downstairs. The tune was, The bells are ringing for me and my gal. I was reading a week-old Spanish paper. What's all this irony and pity? What? Don't you know about irony and pity? No, who got it up? Everybody. They're mad about it in New York. It's just like the Fratellinis used to be. The girl came in with the coffee and buttered toast. Or rather, it was bread toasted and buttered. Ask her if she's got any jam, Bill said. Be ironical with her. Have you got any jam, I asked. That's not ironical. I wish I could talk Spanish. The coffee was good, and we drank it out of big bowls. The girl brought in a glass dish of raspberry jam. Thank you, I said. Hey, that's not the way, Bill said. Say something ironical. Make some crack about Primo de Rivera. I could ask her what kind of a jam they think they've gotten into in the riff. Poor, said Bill, very poor. You can't do it, that's all. You don't understand irony. You have no pity. Say something pitiful. Robert Cohn. Not so bad, that's better. Now why is Cohn pitiful? Be ironic. He took a big gulp of coffee. Oh, hell, I said, it's too early in the morning for that. There you go, he said, and you claim you want to be a writer, too. You're only a newspaper man, an expatriated newspaper man. You ought to be ironical the minute you get out of bed. You ought to wake up with your mouth full of pity. Go on, I said. Who'd you get this stuff from? Everybody. Don't you read? Don't you ever see anybody? You know who you are. You're an expat. Why don't you live in New York? Then you'd know these things. What do you want me to do, come over here and tell you every year? Take some more coffee, I said. Good. Coffee is good for you. It's the caffeine in it. Caffeine, we are here. Caffeine puts a man on her horse and a woman in his grave. You know what's the trouble with you? You're an expatriate, one of the worst types. Haven't you heard that? Nobody that ever left their own country ever wrote anything worth printing, not even in the newspapers. And he drank his coffee. You're an expat. You've lost touch with the soil. You get precious. Fake European standards have ruined you. You drink yourself to death. You become obsessed by sex. You spend all your time talking, not working. You're an expat, see? You hang around cafes. Sounds like a swell life, I said. When do I work? You don't work. One group claims women support you. Another group claims you're impotent. 
No, I said, I just had an accident. Never mention that, said Bill. That's the sort of thing that can't be spoken of. That's what you ought to work up into a mystery, like Henry's bicycle. He'd been going splendidly, but he stopped. I was afraid he thought he'd hurt me with that crack about being impotent. I wanted him to start again. It wasn't a bicycle, I said. He was riding horseback. I heard it was a tricycle. Well, I said, a plane is sort of like a tricycle. The joystick works the same way. But you don't pedal it, he said. No, I guess you don't pedal it. Let's lay off of that, said Bill. Okay, I was just standing up for the tricycle. I think he's a good writer, too, Bill said, and you're a hell of a good guy. Anybody ever tell you you're a good guy? I'm not a good guy, I said. Listen, you're a hell of a good guy, and I'm fonder of you than anybody on earth. I couldn't tell you that in New York. We packed the lunch and two bottles of wine in the rucksack, and Bill put it on. I carried the rod case and the landing nets slung over my back. We started up the road and then went across a meadow, and we found a path that crossed the fields and went toward the woods on the slope of the first hill. We walked across the fields on the sandy path. The fields were rolling and grassy, and the grass was short from the sheep grazing. The cattle were up in the hills. We heard their bells in the woods. The path crossed a stream on a foot log. The log was surfaced off. There was a sapling bent across for a rail. In the flat pool beside the stream, tadpoles spotted the sand. We went up a steep bank and across the rolling fields. Looking back, we saw Brigetta, white houses and red roofs, and the white road with a truck going along it and the dust rising. Beyond the fields, we crossed another, faster-flowing stream. A sandy road led down to the ford and beyond into the woods. The path crossed the stream on another footlog below the ford and joined the road, and we went into the woods. It was a beech wood. The trees were very old. Their roots bulked above the ground. The branches were twisted. We walked on the road between the thick trunks of the old beeches, and the sunlight came through the leaves in light patches on the grass. The trees were big, and the foliage was thick, but it was not gloomy. There was no undergrowth, only the smooth grass, very green and fresh, and the big gray trees were well-spaced, as though it were a park. This is country, said Bill. The road went up a hill, and we got into thick woods, and the road kept climbing. Sometimes it dipped down, but rose again steeply. All the time we heard the cattle in the woods, and finally the road came out on top of the hills. We were on top of the height of land that was the highest part of the range of wooded hills we had seen from Brigetta. There were wild strawberries growing on the sunny side of the ridge in a little clearing in the trees. Ahead, the road came out of the forest and went along the shoulder of the ridge of hills. The hills ahead were not wooded, and there were great fields of yellow gorse. Way off we saw the steep bluffs, dark with trees and jutting with gray stone that marked the course of the Arati River. We have to follow this road along the ridge, cross these hills, go through the woods on the far hills, and come down to the Arati Valley, I pointed out to Bill. That's a hell of a hike, he said. It's too far to go and fish and come back the same day, comfortably. Comfortably, that's a nice word, he said. We'll have to go like hell to get there and back and have any fishing at all. It was a long walk, and the country was fine, but we were tired when we came down the steep road that led out of the wooded hills into the valley of the Rio de la Fabrica. The road came out from the shadow of the woods into the hot sun. Ahead was a river valley. 
Beyond the river was a steep hill. There was a field of buckwheat on the hill. We saw a white house under some trees on the hillside. It was hot, and we stopped under some trees beside a dam that crossed the river. Bill put the pack against one of the trees, and we jointed up the rods, put on the reels, tied on the leaders, and got ready to fish. You sure this thing has trout in it? Bill asked. Full of them, I said. I'm going to fish a fly. You got any McGinty's? There are some in there. You going to fish bait? Yeah, I'm going to fish the dam here. Well, I'll take the fly book then, and he tied on a fly. Where'd I better go, up or down? Down's best. There's plenty up above, too. Bill went down the bank. Take a worm can. No, I don't want one, he said. If they won't take a fly, I'll just flick it around. Bill was down below, watching the stream. Say, he called up against the noise of the dam. How about putting the wine in that spring up the road? All right, I shouted. Bill waved his hand and started down the stream. I found the two wine bottles in the pack and carried them up the road to where the water of a spring flowed out of an old iron pipe. There was a board over the spring, and I lifted it, and knocking the corks firmly into the bottles, I lowered them down into the water. It was so cold that my hand and wrist felt numbed. I put back the slab of wood and hoped nobody would find the wine. I got my rod that was leaning against the tree, took the bait can and the landing net, and walked out onto the dam. It was built to provide a head of water for driving logs. The gate was up, and I sat on one of the squared timbers, and I watched the smooth apron of water before the river tumbled into the falls. In the white water at the foot of the dam, it was deep. As I baited up, a trout shot up out of the white water into the falls and was carried down. Before I could finish baiting, another trout jumped at the falls, making the same lovely arc, disappearing into the water that was thundering down. I put on a good-sized sinker and dropped it into the white water close to the edge of the timbers of the dam. I didn't feel the first trout strike. When I started to pull up, I felt that I had one, and I brought him fighting and bending the rod almost double out of the boiling water at the foot of the falls. I swung him up and onto the dam. He was a good trout, and I banged his head against the timber so that he quivered out straight, and then I slipped him into my bag. While I had him on, several trout had jumped at the falls. As soon as I baited up and dropped in again, I hooked another and brought him in the same way. In a little while, I had six. They were all about the same size. I laid them out side by side, all their heads pointing the same way. I looked at them. They were beautifully colored and firm and hard from the cold water. It was a hot day, so I slit them all and shucked out the insides, gills and all, and tossed them over across the river. I took the trout ashore, washed them in the cold, smoothly heavy water above the dam, and then I picked some ferns and packed them all in the bag. Three trout on a layer of ferns, and then another layer of ferns and three more trout, and then covered them with ferns. They looked nice in the ferns, and now the bag was bulky, and I put it in the shade of the tree. It was hot on the dam, so I put my worm can in the shade with the bag. I got a book out of the bag and settled down under the tree to read until Bill came up for lunch. It was a little past noon and there wasn't much shade, but I sat against the trunk of two of the trees that grew together and I read. 
The book was something by A.E.W. Mason, and I was reading a wonderful story about a man who'd been frozen in the Alps, and he'd fallen into a glacier and disappeared, and his bride was going to wait 24 years exactly for his body to come out on the moraine, while her true love waited too, and they were still waiting when Bill came up. Get any, he asked. He had his rod and his bag and his net all in one hand, and he was sweating. I hadn't heard him come up because of the noise from the dam. Six, what did you get? Bill sat down and he opened up his bag and laid a big trout on the grass, and he took out three more, each one a little bigger than the last, and he laid them side by side in the shade from the tree. His face was sweaty and happy. How are yours? Smaller, I said. Let's see them. They're packed. How big are they, really? They're all about the size of your smallest. You're not holding out on me, are you? He asked. I wish I were. Get them all on worms? Yes. You lazy bum. Bill put the trout in the bag, and he started for the river, swinging the open bag. He was wet from the waist down, and I knew he must have been wading the stream. I walked up the road and got out the two bottles of wine. They were cold. Moisture was beaded on the bottles as I walked back to the trees. I spread the lunch on a newspaper and uncorked one of the bottles and leaned the other against a tree. Bill came up drying his hands. His bag was plump with ferns. Let's see that bottle, he said. He pulled the cork and tipped up the bottle and drank. Whew, that makes my eyes ache. Let's try it. The wine was icy cold and it tasted faintly rusty. That's not such filthy wine, Bill said. Cold helps it, I said. We unwrapped the little parcels of lunch. Chicken. There's hard-boiled eggs. Find any salt? First the eggs, said Bill. Then the chicken. Even Brian could see that. He's dead. I read it in the paper yesterday. No, not really. Yes, Brian's dead. Bill laid down the egg he was peeling. Gentlemen, he said, and unwrapped a drumstick from a piece of newspaper. I reversed the order, for Brian's sake, as a tribute to the great commoner. First the chicken, then the egg. Wonder what day God created the chicken, I asked. Oh, said Bill, sucking the drumstick. How should we know? We should not question. Our stay on earth is not for long. Let us rejoice and believe and give thanks. Eat an egg, I said. Bill gestured with the drumstick in one hand and the bottle of wine in the other. Let us rejoice in our blessings. Let us utilize the fowls of the air. Let us utilize the product of the vine. Will you utilize a little, brother? After you, brother, I said. Bill took a long drink. Utilize a little, brother, and he handed me the bottle. Let us not doubt, brother. Let us not pry into the holy mysteries of the hen coop with simian fingers. Let us accept on faith and simply say, I want you to join me in saying this, what shall we say, brother? He pointed the drumstick at me and went on. Let me tell you, we will say, and I for one am proud to say, and I want you to say it with me, on your knees, brother, let no man be ashamed to kneel here in the great out-of-doors. Remember the woods were God's first temples. Let us kneel and say, Don't eat that, lady. That's Mankin. Here, I said, utilize a little of this, and we uncorked the other bottle. What's the matter, I said. Didn't you like Brian? I loved Brian, said Bill. We were like brothers. Where did you know him? He and Mankin and I all went to Holy Cross together. And Frankie Frisch, I said, it's a lie. Frankie Frisch went to Fordham. Well, I said, I went to Loyola with Bishop Manning. It's a lie, Bill said. I went to Loyola with Bishop Manning myself. 
you're cockeyed, I said. On wine? It's the humidity, Bill said. They ought to take this damn humidity away. Have another shot, I said. This all we got? Only the two bottles. Do you know what you are? Bill looked at the bottle affectionately. No, I said. You're in the pay of the Anti-Saloon League. I went to Notre Dame with Wayne B. Wheeler, I said. It's a lie, said Bill. I went to Austin Business College with Wayne B. Wheeler. He was class president. Well, I said, the saloon must go. You're right there, old classmate, Bill said. The saloon must go, and I will take it with me. You're cockeyed, I said. On wine? On wine. Want to take a nap, I asked. Okay. We lay with our heads in the shade and looked up into the trees. You asleep, I asked. No, said Bill. I was thinking. I shut my eyes. It felt good to be lying on the ground. Say, said Bill, what about this Brett business? What about it? Were you ever in love with her? Sure, I said. For how long? Off and on for a hell of a long time. Oh, hell, said Bill. I'm sorry, fella. Oh, it's all right, I said. I don't give a damn anymore. Really? Really. Only I'd hell of a lot rather not talk about it. You aren't sore, I asked you. Why the hell should I be, I said. I'm going to sleep, said Bill, and he put a newspaper over his face. Listen, Jake, he said, are you really Catholic? Technically. What does that mean? I don't know. All right, I'll go to sleep now. Don't keep me awake by talking so much. I went to sleep, too, and when I woke up, Bill was packing the rucksack. It was late in the afternoon, and the shadow from the trees was long and went out over the dam. I was stiff from sleeping on the ground. What did you do, wake up, Bill asked. Why didn't you spend the night? I stretched and rubbed my eyes. I had a lovely dream, Bill said. I don't remember what it was about, but it was a lovely dream. I don't think I dreamt, I said. You ought to dream, Bill said. All our biggest businessmen have been dreamers. Look at Henry Ford. Look at President Coolidge. Look at Rockefeller. Look at Joe Davidson. I disjointed my rod and Bill's and packed them in the rod case. I put the reels in the tackle bag. Bill had packed the rucksack, and we put one of the trout bags in. I carried the other. Well, said Bill, we got everything. The worms, I said. Your worms. Put them in there. He had the pack on his back, and I put the worm cans in one of the outside flap pockets. Got everything now? I looked around on the grass at the foot of the elm trees. Yes. We started up the road into the woods. It was a long walk back home to Brigetta, and it was dark when we came down across the fields to the road and along the road between the houses of the town, their windows lighted to the inn. We stayed five days at Brigetta and had good fishing. The nights were cold, the days were hot, and there was always a breeze, even in the heat of the day. It was hot enough so that it felt good to wade in a cold stream, and the sun dried you when you came out and sat on the bank. We found a stream with a pool deep enough to swim in. In the evenings, we played three-handed bridge with an Englishman named Harris. He'd walked over from St. John Pied de Port and was stopping at the inn for the fishing. He was very pleasant and went with us twice to the Irati River. There was no word from Robert Cohn, nor from Brett and Mike. As we close this time, we're about halfway through The Sun Also Rises, Ernest Hemingway's novel from 1926. We'll resume reading during the next installment on The Bookshelf, produced by Vern Windham for Spokane Public Radio. Thank you for joining us. I'm Doug Nadvornik.